Father Damien was a priest who became famous for his willingness to serve lepers. He moved to Kalawo, a village on the island of Molokai in Hawaii, that had been quarantined to serve as a leper colony. For 16 years, he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced the bodies no one else would touch, preached to hearts that would otherwise have been left alone to die. He organized schools. He organized bands, choirs. He built homes so that the lepers would have shelter to live in. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Slowly it was said that the island became a place to live rather than a place to die. For Father Damien offered them hope. But he was not careful in keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from the lepers. He dipped his fingers in the poi bowl along with the patients. He shared all of their experiences. He didn't always wash his hands after he had been bandaging their open sores. He got close, and that's why, of course, the people loved him. Then one day, he stood up and he began his weekly sermon with two words. We lepers. Now he was one of them. From that day forward, he just wasn't on their island, he was in their skin. First he had chosen to live as they lived, now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. One day, God came to earth and he began his message, we lepers. He was one of us. He was in our skin. We were in it together from that time forward. Jesus became one of us to help all of us. The incarnation, that great big theological word, simply is about God becoming human in order to help humans. God entered our world, God entered your world in order to help you face what you face in life. Jesus knows how you feel because he experienced what you experience. You say, how can Jesus know how I feel? He can know how you feel because he has felt it too. Now, he didn't feel what it means to sin because Jesus did not sin, of course. But he certainly felt what it means to suffer in a sinful world. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, 9 and 10 as we pick up our study. We left off, well, a couple of weeks ago now (laughs) with verse 9, so I'll pick up there. Verse 9, Hebrews 2, But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So first of all, this morning, Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Jesus, God's Son, died. But it was God the Father who sent God the Son to suffer and die on the cross so that he could save you and me. And verse 10 tells us that it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was proper, it was right for him to do this. The him here must be God the Father in this verse. God the Father is the him for it is God the Father for whom all things existed and through whom all things existed. And it was God the Father who knew it was right It was appropriate to send his son to die in order to bring many sons. Literally, the the verb means to lead or carry many sons to glory. In order for God to save us, he had to sacrifice his son for us. In 1989, 96 fans were crushed to death in a soccer stadium in Sheffield, England, and another 200 were badly injured. At one of the hospitals where the victims were were taken and were being treated, an attending surgeon spoke to the parents who had come to find out the fate of their children. The surgeon read the names of those killed, and he expressed his sympathy to the parents who were there. And he said that he believed that God understood the parents' grief, and was with them in their time of need. And one father bitterly responded to the surgeon, What does God know about losing a son? Oh, God knows a lot about losing a son, doesn't he? God knows exactly what every mother or father who loses a son knows. For God lost his son. In fact, God chose to sacrifice His Son for the sake of all of us. Could you do that for your child? Could you let your child die to save another? That's what God the Father did. God could have stopped the hands of the soldiers who whipped His Son as He watched. God's all-powerful. He could have stopped the hands of the soldiers as they nailed his son to the cross. Couldn't he? But he didn't. God could have killed the people who killed his son. But he didn't. He's a father who loved his son with an infinite love. But he chose to let his son die. Because he loved you. Yes, God knows what it feels to lose his child, to bury a son. Now what the verse says is that God did it to perfect the author of their salvation. That is, the sons he was leading to glory, the humans he was bringing to glory. God did it to perfect the author, the originator, the founder of our salvation. The only way to save us was for Jesus to die. 
But the verse goes on to say that God knew it was right to perfect the founder of our salvation through sufferings. Now that's a profound theological mystery. Think about it. If Jesus is God, then how could he need perfecting? Isn't God perfect? If God the Son was perfect, what did he need to perfect? If God is all-powerful, does that mean that he can do anything? No. For he cannot sin. He is limited by his own character. He cannot violate his own character. God can do anything within his nature to do, but he cannot do what is outside his nature. All right, another question. If God is omniscient, all-knowing, does that mean that he knows everything? Ah, Trick question. (laughs) Trick question. If we mean, does he know what will happen before it happens? Yes. He knows it all. If we mean that he knows what you're thinking right now, yes, he knows it all. But if we mean, does he experience what we experience as humans, the answer is no. At least he didn't. God did not know what it felt like to be a human. God did not know what it felt like to physically be hungry, to physically be thirsty, right? Because God is spirit. So he could not know experientially what it felt like to be thirsty. God did not know what it felt like to experience physical pain. God did not know what it felt like to be sick. Can I say it? God did not know what it felt like to die until Jesus came. God did not know what it felt like to experience human experiences until God the Son became a human. He was born as a baby. He grew up as a child. He lived and suffered and died as a human being. And it is in this sense that the founder of our salvation had to be perfected. If he's going to lead the way through death to resurrection glory for humans, he has to do it as a human. For he is the pioneer, the founder of our salvation. And he had to be completed. The word for perfect means to complete. He had to be completed in that sense. God was incomplete to be man's savior until God became a man and died to pay for man's sin. I told you this is, Hebrews has so many tremendous theological mysteries in it. Malcolm Muggeridge put it this way, As man alone, Jesus could not have saved us. As God alone, he would not. Incarnate, he could and he did. Now puzzle on that one for a minute. I did. Man, of course, cannot save himself. That makes sense. But God would not save. Why? Because God would not violate his own nature. And one of the aspects of God's own nature is that he is absolutely just. And justice required that payment for sin be rendered. 
So unless God paid himself for sin, he wouldn't save a sinner. For God cannot violate his own character. But God became a man to die as a man and pay the price for sin. And so God incarnate paid himself. And then he could, and he would, and he did save us. The only way for God to save man and be consistent with his own nature was to become a man so he could die as a man and save mankind. Now an individual human by himself dying would have had to have been perfect. He would have had to have been sinless because otherwise he'd have to die for his own sins. Right? But he couldn't have died for your sin. He'd have to He can only be one person. He's not infinite. So he had to be both man and God to die for the sins of all. A perfect sacrifice that paid the price. So the author of salvation had to be completed by suffering as a man to save mankind. He had to go through what we would go through to lead us to salvation. Second principle, Jesus is our brother in holiness. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. The church father, Athanasius, wrote, He became what we are, that he might make us what he is. Notice what verse 11 says. The word for sanctify means to make holy. So the one who makes holy, and the ones who are being made holy, are all from one. Now, the word father is not in the Greek text, but we supply it because the rest of the verse goes on to talk about how we are brothers, the brethren. So, are all from one father. Jesus is the one who makes holy. We don't make ourselves holy. And we are the ones being made holy because we are unholy. We are both from one father. The word indicates that We come from the same source. We have the same father as Jesus. Jesus then is our brother in holiness. God is holy. We are unholy. All of us. We cannot be children of the holy God unless Jesus, who makes people holy, makes us holy. Then we are the children of God. And Jesus is our brother in holiness. Because we have the same Father then, God the Father, Jesus is not ashamed, the text says, to call us brothers. Brothers and sisters will extend it. Have you ever been with someone and you felt ashamed to call them family? They embarrassed you maybe. Don't look around. (laughs) There, there. No, no, this is a rhetorical question this morning. Everybody's looking at each other in their family rows, you know, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah. 
that wasn't where this was supposed to go. <laughs> but, you know, somebody does something embarrassing, right, in your family, and, and uh, you're not sure you want to be identified with them. You, uh, maybe you lose status somehow. You know, teenagers, right? Right? You know, mom and dad, stay off there somewhere, you know. You, you, you know, you might embarrass me, right? <laughs> Don't want to be, not sure I want to be identified with you right now with my friends. Well, the reason we feel that way is we lose status somehow among those that are important to us. People might look at us funny because of our family members. Well, Jesus is not ashamed to call you family. Now think about that for a minute. Jesus is not ashamed to call us family. Jesus does not feel like he loses any status before God and before this world by calling you a brother or sister. His brother or sister. By being identified with you or me. Now, we may feel ashamed to be identified with Jesus, right? Sometimes that happens. And we want to kind of hide that fact as Christians. We're afraid that if someone knew we were Christians, they might not want us to be their friends. We might not be so popular with the important people if we are identified with Jesus Christ. But Jesus is not ashamed to be identified with us. Even though we are being made holy, right? That means we haven't arrived yet. So we do stuff that embarrasses God but he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We are holy works in progress, but he loves us and calls us family. Now, the author of Hebrews uses three quotations from the Old Testament to drive home this concept. The first quote comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. In fact, Jesus quoted Psalm 22 on the cross. It's the psalm, My God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? Right? But Psalm 22 also said these words, I, Jesus says, will proclaim, will announce your name to my brethren in the midst of the church, the congregation, I will sing your praise. God, I will announce your name to my brethren and in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise in the midst of the church. I am proud that they are my brothers before you, God. I'm happy to announce you to them as my brothers. The second and third quotes come from Isaiah 8, where the prophet is talking about going through some very hard times in Isaiah 8. And he's talking about as he goes through those hard, hard times, feeling like God maybe has abandoned him. Have you felt, ever felt that God had abandoned you? Well, Jesus felt that way too on the cross, but he says, quoting Psalm 8, even in feeling like I've been abandoned, I have confidence in him that he is God the Father. And again, I and the children you, God the Father, have given me, that's us, will take confidence in God the Father. He's talking about us. Jesus is not ashamed to be identified with us. He has confidence in the darkest days of life that God knows what he is doing. And he is excited to announce to the church that we are family and to proclaim God's glory together. 
as part of the family of God. You know, we have this great desire to be accepted, don't we? To belong. Everybody does. You want to belong. You want to be accepted. We work hard to be accepted. We want people to accept us. And sometimes I hear people say something like this, I can't go to church. People would look at me funny. I wouldn't be accepted. I wouldn't belong there. Well, guess what? Sinful people don't always act as they should, and it's possible that those who profess the name of Jesus Christ might make you feel unaccepted. They might not accept you, or they might not accept me. But Jesus does. Jesus does. If you have come by faith to him and you have turned to him, Jesus accepts you. If we have accepted him as our Savior, then he accepts us as his holy brother or sister. That's phenomenal. We belong because he's making us holy. We're not there yet, but we belong. Jesus will announce or proclaim we're family in the midst of the assembly, the church. He's not just our Savior and Lord. Jesus is family. That's the second principle. Third, Jesus is our champion who defeats death. Verse 14. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to the angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. See, God isn't saving angels. He saves humans. He saves the seeds, seed of Abraham. That's you and me. Verse 14 tells us that every human being shares a common reality. We all have flesh and blood. There isn't anybody in this room who doesn't have flesh and blood. We all have flesh and blood. There's no human being alive who's not made up of flesh and blood. In fact, when the brain waves cease and death comes to the human, it is our flesh and blood that dies. God does not have flesh and blood. God is spirit. But if Jesus, as the Son of God, is to be the founder of our salvation and our brother in holiness and our champion who defeats death for us, he must share in our reality. He must live in our skin. Jesus must be a flesh and blood Jesus. He cannot defeat a flesh and blood death if he does not suffer a flesh and blood death for us. So Jesus shares in our flesh and blood, our common reality. And the word for share is a word that means to actually partake of and participate in our flesh and blood. God became flesh and blood, a flesh and blood human, so that He could truly share in what we are by nature as humans. Now that sounds so basic, doesn't it? And yet it is being challenged today by so many, as it has been down through history. The ancient heresy of Gnosticism is being popularized today in such fiction as the Da Vinci Code, which is simply Gnosticism regurgitated. And many other writings. The ancient Heresy argues that Jesus was just a man upon whom the Christ Spirit came. 
So God never became flesh and blood. And before Jesus died on the cross, the Christ spirit left Jesus. So it's just the man Jesus who died on the cross. Not the Christ. Not the Christ spirit. The Bible says that's false. The Bible totally denies that heresy. Jesus is both God and man in one person. God actually took on flesh and blood as the nature, the common reality of man. He died an actual flesh and blood death. He rose an actual flesh and blood resurrection. It's the only way that God could defeat a flesh and blood death for us. This is essential to the Christian message. This is not something we just ignore, this heresy. It's the only way that God could defeat death for us. So modern Gnosticism is just as false as ancient Gnosticism. If Jesus Christ is not a flesh and blood Christ, then we, flesh and blood humans, do not have a real hope for life after death. So Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 argues that Jesus Christ became flesh and blood for the purpose of dying and by death, defeating death for all of us. So Jesus Christ became flesh and blood in order that through death he might render powerless the one who has the power of death over us. That's Satan. That's the devil. By dying a flesh and blood death, Jesus delivered us or released us from the fear of death, which held us in slavery all of our lives. Every human being has lived with the reality of death. People try all kinds of ways to ignore it, right? We don't want to think about it, but every human being has lived his entire life, his or her entire life, in slavery to death, because you can't escape it. There's no way to escape it. And... Every human being has lived with the reality of death hanging over them like a guillotine. It's coming. It will be here. It will happen. Satan's greatest weapon then for slaving mankind is death. God requires death as a penalty for sin. Every human is a sinner, therefore every human must die. And if Satan can hold on to humans until they die, he has them forever because there's no escape after that. So it's his greatest weapon. And 1 John 3.8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The more powerful a weapon is, it always nullifies or renders impotent a less powerful weapon. A bow and arrow is useless against a nuclear missile. So Satan's weapon of death is useless against Jesus' weapon of eternal life. The nuclear missile of of eternal life renders the fear of death powerless. It can't grip us. It can't enslave us. Satan can't enslave us with the fear of death because we have eternal life. That's why we can say with the Apostle Paul, O death, where is your victory? 
Oh, oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. Fourth principle. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, in everything, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become like us in order to become a merciful and high priest, a a merciful and faithful high priest for us. A high priest, what does he do? He represents people to God. So our high priest represents us to God. Since he knows what it is like to suffer as a human, he can represent us to God sympathetically and in an understanding way as we go through the struggles we face. Jesus is our high priest, came to make propitiation for our sins. Great big word that simply means he came to satisfy God's justice for our sins. To wipe out our sins before God by dying in our place and paying for them. All those wrongs you did, all those wrongs I have done, are wiped out of the record books when we trust Christ as our Savior. He satisfies all of the justice of God. And He gives us His righteousness. Jesus paid for our sins so we don't have to pay for them ourselves. He is both merciful and faithful. He is faithful because he pays for your sins. And he is merciful because he feels your struggles. And he loves you too much to leave you or me in our sins. Verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Because Jesus was tempted as a human being, going through all the things that he suffered, he knows what we feel like when we go through those things ourselves. And he can help us with those struggles. By the way, the word for tempt does not just mean to be tempted to sin. I mean, it certainly means that, and Jesus was tempted to sin, yet without sin. But it doesn't just mean to be tempted to sin. We could also translate it in this verse, tested. Just as Jesus was tested through his his sufferings, so he understands what it means for us to be tested through our sufferings, through the rain that falls on us in this world. The word suffer means to have pain or struggle inflicted on us by others or by circumstances. Other people and other circumstances hurt us in life. Well, they hurt him too. He knows what it means to be hurt. He knows what it means to cry in pain because of the meanness of this world. I can think of two times in Jesus' life when we are told that Jesus cried. The first time is John chapter 11, when Jesus arrives at the funeral of his friend Lazarus, right? And he comes there, and at this funeral, everyone is weeping. They are crying for the loss of a brother, a family member, a loved one who has died. 
And Jesus, it says, Jesus wept. Now Jesus wept even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Because he does that shortly thereafter. But he wept because he felt that loss too. He knew what it meant to feel the grief, the loss of someone who has died. Someone we loved who has passed away. The second time Jesus cries is outside the city of Jerusalem on his way to the cross that last week, that Palm Sunday. And he stops on the Mount of Olives and he looks over the city and he cries, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, all that is going to happen to you and all that you are going to do to me. And he cried for the people of the city. In less than one week, those people were going to nail him to a cross. And he cried for them. And he knew that in the years ahead, the suffering that would come for the city of Jerusalem as the Roman soldiers would destroy it in 70 AD, and all of the pain and all of the agony that people would go through, and he cried for the meanness of this world. He would suffer horribly at their hands and they would suffer horribly at the hands of others. For this is a rotten and sinful world. And he cried. Maybe people have done some bad things to you in your life. People did really bad things to Jesus too. Maybe you've suffered rejection. Jesus suffered rejection too. Maybe you've been betrayed by someone you loved. Jesus was betrayed by someone he loved. Maybe you've suffered the loss of someone you loved. Jesus has suffered the loss of someone he loved. So Jesus can help you. He can help me. He can comfort us because he knows what it means to cry in pain too. Trust him with your wounds. Let him comfort you in your loss today. When Damien Spikewright was in high school, his father passed away. It was just two days before his high school graduation that his dad died very suddenly. And he was a brand new Christian at that time, a baby Christian. And he he said he just cried out to God. He just wanted God to speak to him in this situation. How God was going to get them through all of this difficult time. So he prayed and he waited for God to speak. Came to the day of the funeral. The church was packed. Damien sat in the front pew with his mother and his two younger sisters. The Lutheran minister spoke, but Damien said he didn't remember a word the man said. He continued to wait for God to say something, to touch his heart. The service was over. It was a tradition of that church that the family would line up in the foyer after a funeral service and everybody would go by and they would shake their hands and offer their condolences. And so the family lined up and tears were shed and hugs were offered, words were given. He doesn't remember anything that anybody said that day. But he continued to wait for God to say something. And then he saw Kim O'Quinn. She was his age, senior in high school. They were in youth group together. 
And when she got to him, she didn't say a word. She had tears in her eyes. And she simply hugged him, and she walked off. And then he said he heard God speak in his heart. You see, just months before, he had attended another funeral. It was the funeral for Kim O'Quinn's dad. And in that moment, she knew exactly what he was feeling. And God spoke. And then Damien writes these words, now as an adult, if you want to hear God's voice in your life, look no further than the one who knows exactly what it's like to be you. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be rejected. If you want to hear God's voice speak, allow your soul to be quieted long enough so that you can hear the one who was in the beginning say to you, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Jesus loves me. Loves me still. When I'm very weak and ill, from his shining throne on high, comes to watch me where I lie. Jesus loves me. He will stay close beside me all the way. He's prepared a home for me, and someday his face I'll see. The song we call a children's song is profound with theology, isn't it? Bobby, is it too much to ask that we sing that one as we close this morning? It's number 579 in your hymnals as we close. Jesus loves me. Let's stand as we sing. Hymn number 579.